This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome Australians, I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. So, Eric, we had a plan, and then, as usual, you were like, wait, I got a better plan. What's your better plan for this episode? Uh, the better plan is, um, look, crypto, it, it just, I can't escape it, right? You had Elon Musk on Saturday Night Live, Dogecoin. You've had uh, Gary Gensler of the SEC come out and talk about crypto exchanges. That's kind of maybe put a little cold water on our uh, you know, outlook of when a Bitcoin ETF might here be approved here. Then you also see up in Canada, the Ether ETFs and the Bitcoin ETFs are relentless. Normally a new launch like comes out hard and then like trickles. These things are are right there where they were. And so you can tell there's this breadth and depth and the issue is just um, really taken over. And so I, I thought we would go over this with somebody who I consider to be like three years into the future. It's almost like we are going to get to see what the U.S. might look like in about you know 24 to 36 months. And this is Ophelia Snyder, who's co-founder of 21 Shares. Um, over in Europe, you can launch whatever you want. It's like free-for-all over there. And so she has a lineup of, get this, 14 different crypto ETFs. I haven't even heard of three or four of them. So that's how far ahead of the curve she is. So I just would really like to get her take on how she did it, how it works, the market making, the exchanges, and just what it's like to basically manage this full line of crypto ETFs which is probably what we're going to see from big issuers like Fidelity and uh, VanEck someday. We're also joined by James Seyfert again of Bloomberg Intelligence. This time on Trillions, going full crypto with Ophelia Snyder. Ophelia, James, welcome to Trillions. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. James, we're not really here for you. We're here for Ophelia. But <laughs> I want to start with you. Can you set the table a little bit about what's going on in crypto right now? Eric, Eric laid a good, uh, a good groundwork here. We, as you talked about Elon going on SNL, all, all this Dogecoin rallying like crazy. Crypto just seems to be just part of the ecosystem, whether you're on Twitter or in finance, no matter what you do, there's some sort of crypto being spoken about. In my area, I'm, I'm always covering anyone filing new ETFs to launch Bitcoin or any crypto ETF. There's now four different issuers who have filed what's called a 19B4. And you don't need to get into the specifics, but essentially it's people filing with an exchange for a rule change to allow a Bitcoin ETF on US exchanges. Um, so that's what we're watching heavily in the U.S. Okay, so Ophelia, welcome to Trillions. And and look, like you're talking to a lot of Americans who who you know don't have access to your products, and you know here you are um, from the future. So so talk to us from the future, and and what are we missing out on? So I think when when I think about Europe and, and crypto ETPs and ETFs. Um, 
we've been incredibly lucky. Uh, the All of our products are based out of the Swiss market and the Swiss took a completely different approach to crypto regulation, which was right out of the gate. Let's get it defined. Let's get a structure in place. And let's tell people what they can and can't do. It's a very well-defined box. If you're willing to play in it, you, can, you get a lot of leeway within that box. And I think we've spent a lot of time talking to both our own regulators and other regulators trying to get them comfortable with this. And it, it took a very long time to get this product structure right. Um, we did it at a point in time when there was no infrastructure really. So you, you had regulatory clarity, but no infrastructure, which is a completely different landscape that I think a lot of these US applicants are entering. Where there is infrastructure, they just don't have clarity on the regulatory side. Um, so for us, it became an exercise in figuring out, understanding what that sandbox we could play in would look like, figuring out how to fit into it really well, and then figuring out how to actually launch a thing that no one had done before, that all of the traditional like ETF players, no one would help you. This was 2017, 2018. No one was willing to actually help you operationalize product like this. And so we ended up getting a really interesting crash course in like the plumbing of what it takes to make an ETF function. Uh, and that ended up being where we spent most of our time in product development. It's the complete opposite of the U.S. landscape. Could we break this down a little bit? So explain to, because I think people are interested, if you're starting an ETF, what do you need? What is the plumbing? And just how did you accomplish it? If you break down an ETF to what it actually is, right? It's a box that you put stuff in that has to trade at the same value as the components of what's inside the box. It's really all it is, right? And the closer you get these two things to work together, the better. The way in which you actually make that happen is a combination of some pretty intense data distribution some pretty intense like calculations that come around that and an ability to interact with market makers efficiently and then actually get them securities into their hands, right? Ultimately, that's what you're doing. We take in crypto, we give you a security. We need to do that in such a way that the contents of the box and the box with its contents in it trade roughly at the same price. But normally you would go to a state street, a BNY and say, hey, I would like to set up this box and they will manage the funds in, the funds out, the data distribution, the fund accounting calculations, all the administration of your fund, all of the legal structuring. There are companies that do that. There are underwriters. There's a ton of people who do package things to make these products work. And it becomes like the role of an asset manager becomes quite different in that you really come in not to operationalize a product, but to run a strategy. The difference in, in crypto is that, so roll back the clock, 2017, no one had the technical infrastructure to do this because you basically have two separate systems. You have securities that need to do stuff and you have crypto that needs to do a different set of things. They're not really well connected in any way. So you actually had to, we had to build infrastructure to bridge that. We ended up creating a platform that actually manages all of your subscriptions and redemptions, the ins and outs of the product, our relationships with market makers, um, our fund accounting all the way through to custody reconciliations. And it basically plugs into our own platform that we had to develop in-house because at the time, no one could service it. Okay. So I guess it's it's good to jump in. And I guess one thing we should start with is just talking about the reasons the SEC has denied all these Bitcoin ETFs or crypto ETFs in the past and get your views on them. First is one of the, they're concerned about NAV calculation and being the market is so segmented on many different exchanges um, there's no like central authority. 
and just getting an accurate nav, which from my point of view, uh, we've seen plenty of issues where navs are inaccurate, especially in the fixed income market. Uh, even in the US, we saw it during the pandemic. I don't see it as an issue, but it's evident in the SEC's replies that they're concerned about it. So I guess first, I guess would be about a question about arbitrage and market makers and how your products are working and how you think it'll work in the US. So we don't really see any substantial premiums or discounts. From a market-making infrastructure perspective, it's quite straightforward at this point. Like we've been running these products for three years, they almost three years. They are they trade quite easily. Crypto is very liquid. It has uniqueness in its settlement structure um, that has certain considerations, lets us do some really cool stuff, but has its own drawbacks. And I think ultimately you don't see a ton of issues in terms of market making and accuracy and in trading and those types of things. The way we've structured our products, we don't do cash creations at all. So we don't really trade now. Now it becomes a record. No one really uses it for anything, either for trading the products actively, although we publish INAs and things like that, or for creations redemptions. It's just not something we do. We actually price everything in crypto. Makes it much more transparent. You look at an entitlement model out of gold. People love to talk about Bitcoin as you know the next iteration of gold. Treat it like that, price it that way, it makes a ton of sense. Um, in the same way you would have like an ounce per, you know, ounces per share in a gold ETF like GLD structure. That works really well. It's really transparent. And then you sort of get away from some of these pricing issues, um, from having them actually be impactful to the product itself. I think the broader question you're asking is about crypto pricing now, right? It seemed as though the SEC was really primed to approve it this year. My over-under is September 30th. Dave Nadig, who knows a lot. His is in August, because that's exactly six months after Canada, which is, we always follow Canada. Reggie Brown, who is more plugged in than either of us, says January 2021. Anyway, regardless 2022. of- 2022. sorry. Um, time's flying. Uh, reg- <laughs> Here's what um, Gensler said, though. About Bitcoin exchanges, we need greater investor protection here, there. We don't have a federal regime overseeing the crypto exchanges. There's a gap in our system. Now, that, again, it almost seems like if he wants to make all of the crypto exchanges perfect or, or as good as, say, the, the stock market, it could be a long time. Others say, well, he's just saying that to buy space and time. It's like, all right, look, give me a couple months here. I'm going to say that just to pour more cold water than I need. But here's my point. Aren't these the same exchanges that all the issuers are using? And it seems to be working fine. Oh, so I have a controversial opinion, I guess. Um, I am not anti-regulation. I'm actually quite pro this. I think it's a great idea. I think as long as we have regulatory clarity, the rest is fine. I don't think crypto as an industry has any problem with meeting whatever standard it is people want to have met. I think the problem is no one's ever set the standard. It's a different issue. I see it in Switzerland, right? The, the reason our business is able to grow the way it is is because we have a very defined set of rules. We follow them. As long as we follow them, everything's great and there's no risk associated with that. I guess my question is, do you feel, as somebody who operates with the exchanges and your market makers have to use them, do, do you think they need more investor protection or are they okay? You can have an ETF uh, operating and have them in the e- ecosystem of the ETF. I think from a practical perspective, we're fine. I don't think you're going to, each exchange is slightly different. They all have slightly different ways of doing things. 
I don't think there's anything that's that materially problematic or different. I think, but to go back, I think the point, the bigger point is even if there's nothing that needs to be changed, it would be great if there was a bar that everybody could just meet and you've met the bar and it's good. I view this almost like a chicken and the egg situation. I mean, the U.S. ETF and U.S. exchange volume, like we are the liquidity capital of the world and we have the best market makers in the world. Um, there's so much capital going in here. And if, if these market makers that are in the U.S. and a U.S. ETF comes to market, I almost feel like allowing that to happen would clean up anything that's going on. I mean, these market makers are not going to be messing around or getting pushed around. Uh, so it's it's a little bit, like I said, it's a little bit of a chicken the egg situation. If you bring these people in here, it's going to clean up the market. It's going to tighten up the market, you would say. Or I was saying that a couple of years ago. Now the market is a completely different world. It's way more mature than it was even in 2018, 2019. So we, we actually just did some analysis on this. The market's pretty tight. Yeah. Like, like you actually look at statistically what's happening across a variety of different crypto markets. They all move together. It's really tightly grouped. There's nothing odd happening in that. And I think part of the thing that has changed in the past several years in the crypto markets is a lot of those market makers that you're talking about are playing in this pool, either directly as corporates, but you also have a lot of ex-traders that came from those shops who have entered the crypto market partially because there was money to be made in that arbitrage trade. And so you now have both quite literally those firms as well as the people who used to run that trading and, and have that experience entering the space. And you ended up with a much tighter market. I think to some degree we're there, right? You have these big players playing in this pool and it's helped tremendously in terms of the maturity of the market. Like I run across it a lot, like people I knew in, in previous lives who are not popping up in crypto. I think probably true for all of us is not yes. that common anymore. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The other big story that's happening this week is the Colonial Pipeline ransomware hack. And again, I, I totally understand that the vast majority of people who own Bitcoin aren't um, criminals and yet you know here's the downside of of bitcoin which is that it can still be used and it's anonymous or it can be used anonymously and there's this an underworld that will attract regulatory ire when it's used as as ransom and so is there how, how big of a fear do you have about regulatories regulatory bodies in america actually just never wanting to make th let this thing go mainstream as long as it's anonymous. But, you know, maybe you take away the anonymity and it might change things. I think anonymity in crypto is sort of a red herring. Nothing about crypto is that anonymous unless you're trading privacy coins. There, there are coins that are designed to do that and that's a different market. But if you're talking about Bitcoin and whether or not Bitcoin is anonymous, you can run analytics on chain to figure out where every piece of crypto that you're receiving in a transaction from when it was mined through today. You're never going to be able to do that with the US dollar. I think part of it is just a lack of understanding of how we could use that structure. And I think if, to go back to the question of regulation, I think if you have infrastructure around that, you're not going to actually have a real, real issue there. Because 
being pseudonymous versus being actually anonymous are quite different. And, and Bitcoin especially is pseudonyms, right? You, you get a string that is you. But ultimately, if you're going to bring those assets into a like any kind of fiat on-ramp and you're trying to get that out of the system and into something else, you're inevitably going to have to clear some form of KYC AML and they're going to run what amounts to a background check on your specific piece of crypto from the day it was born until the day it's hitting that account. And you can't really do that in the same way with the US dollar. So we talked about everyone has their over-unders. The VanEck filing, as I mentioned, is the first one. And we have the, the deadline will be November 10th about where the SEC either has to fully approve or fully deny that filing. Um, I mentioned there's three others that are going through that process right now. There's like 12 different issuers that are in this in this, uh, in this this race to potentially launch a Bitcoin ETF. Um, so what what if you had to pick a date, I'm sure you talk to these people. I'm sure they've reached out to you for questions about different things. Um, what what over under date would you put it at? Do you think we're going to see one in 2021 or do you think we're going to see one in 2022? I agree with the range broadly. I think I'm slightly to the latter end of that. I think late late Q4 is probably more realistic than early Q4. So I don't know, sometime in November, December is probably where I would put it. So 2021. Very, very late 2021. I do right. think a lot has changed, um, including Canada's Canada is a lot closer to us than Europe, and I think that physicality actually matters. They have a history of launching uh, ETFs ahead of us uh, in groundbreaking asset classes, and they've been doing fine. I mean, their their premiums are tight. They've seen a lot of action, both up and down, um, and now they got into Ether. There's a multiple Ether ETFs. I also think you now have more context around trading behavior in much more robust markets around like unique corporate actions in crypto. Like things like forks are ultimately just corporate actions, right? There's not a material difference between that and the stock split or that and any kind of spinoff. They're pretty similar to other stuff that we have that exists in normal financial infrastructure. I also think you've finally seen those happening in a more robust trading environment. And one of the big questions has always been like trading behavior around these things, network stability. I think a lot of those questions have been answered as well. So purely like technical stuff, we've actually seen a much more robust cycle. Like we've gone through forks in our products, we've gone through all sorts of different things and it's never caused an issue. And you can actually watch um, the impact of those actions across networks and you're not seeing you know, substantial issues uh, with network performance. I think that's also quite helpful. So it's a question that comes up a lot. So um, it, was, it might've been February or March. I was just tooling around on ETF Go, which is like, just I call it the leaderboard, and I sort by flows, I sort by performance, and I did year-to-date return, and I did everything. A lot of times I'll, I'll screen out other countries or leverage, but I, I did the whole enchilada. This is 9,092 ETFs. Number one, by far, in year-to-date return is 21 shares Binance BNB ETP. Number two, by far, is 21 shares Ripple XRP ETP. <laughs> And then you've got number five, you've got number seven, you've got number 10. You're basically like, you're all over the leaderboard. And this is out of 9,000 ETFs. So I guess let's just start with your product line and starting, I think people get Bitcoin and and Ethereum at this point. Uh, You know, what is Binance? How did that launch come about? BNB is a a coin native to the Binance ecosystem. And very long-winded way of saying it basically is 
sort of like a rewards card inside of one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges. So Binance is like the 800 pound gorilla in terms of trading volumes. They are massive, global. If you trade crypto, chances are you either touch, you touch Binance in some way. They are kind of everywhere and offer a massive range of crypto services. And one of the things that happened is basically they came out with this token that would allow you to do a number of things within their ecosystem. And they've also built some decentralized applications on top of that. And it lets you do a lot of things within the Binance network um, that are quite unique. On the back of the Coinbase IPO, there was a lot of excitement around the exchange business. And I think for the first time, people having a real understanding of what the crypto exchange business actually looks like from a monetary perspective. Um, and Binance is substantially larger. Um, and so you ended up with a, a structure where this specific token, even though it is absolutely not Binance equity, it does represent a participation in their ecosystem. And that was really exciting. And it was substantially undervalued, apparently. And so you had a really fascinating disjuncture between these two markets. And people got very excited about it. And if you couple that with the fact that Binance has rolled out in the past several months, a couple of really interesting new projects that expand its reach into things like DeFi, um, it's been doing incredibly well. Uh, that product came about because we have a pretty unique, I think, approach to crypto products, which is that we really wanted to make sure that people have real access to interesting underlying assets. We launched, we have a, the largest product suite in the world for these types of products. And we do it because ultimately we wanted to bring them into the mainstream and give people access to them in an easy way. Um, because while I think for people in crypto, Binance is pretty common infrastructure for people who maybe aren't in crypto, signing up for Binance may be quite a reach. And we wanted to find a way to bridge that and allow people to um, you know, still get access to the sector. Um, I guess the Binance tokens, like one simple example to lay it out for somebody who's not familiar, you, you, everyone has to pay uh, fees when you're trading on an exchange, right? There's exchange fees. That's how Coinbase makes all their money. If you use the Binance token to pay your fees, the dollar amount or the actual amount you're paying is a little less. It's like an incentive to use the Binance coin. That's how it, like one of the things it started out as. Um, so just throw that in there. And then I guess my next question is, you guys, we, we've talked about it. There's a whole bunch. We'll probably get into some of these other products but it goes back to the regulatory framework. Like in the US and Canada and many other places, they're allowing Bitcoin, they're allowing Ethereum, but like no one else is going further than that at this point in most other markets. Um, there's some index-based products, but how did the, can you talk, you keep mentioning the regulatory framework from the Swiss, Swiss point of view, but how did it go when you guys were launching all these things other than the, if you're going to call them widely accepted, Bitcoin and Ethereum? You have things like a, a crypto basket, you have um, Tezos, you have, all these different Bitcoin forks like Bitcoin Cash, Cardano, um, Stellar, XRP, Polka um, again, Polkadot, <laughs> um, all of them. Can you just explain how like that conversation went with regulators, if at all? Sure. Um, we've been doing this for, oh, frankly, I mean, relative crypto a long time. The first product we came out with was actually an index. And at the time, it was the only one in the world. Actually, I think we're, I don't know that there are. There are a couple now, other indices, but 
none in, in this format. Um, the conversation with regulators ends up boiling down to a couple of things, which is it, there's a bunch of stuff on their no-fly list, which has to do with it's not a security, it's not, you know, you're not doing a backdoor IPO, you know, they have a this list of criteria. And basically, if you're able to meet all of those criteria and show them that there is, you know, sufficient liquidity, uh, real trading pairs against fiat, um, and some stability in the network, they are able to get comfortable. The interesting stuff comes in when we get away from like a plain vanilla track. So we have products that have yield in them, for example, Tezos being a good example of that, where you can actually have a yield generating component. And that's where we end up having more nuanced conversations when we're trying to introduce new features like that. Otherwise, it comes down to network stability, some seasoning metrics, some volume metrics, and some technical ones related to how the specific crypto asset is structured. Is it its own chain? Is it based on another one? How has it actually been built? Ends up being a large part of the conversation. Okay. So you, sorry, you lost me at Tezos. And that's (laughs) part of my question here. You've got Ethereum and Bitcoin and Ripple. I get all those. But like Tezos... Cardano, Polkadot, what what are those and how do you decide what you're going to do and what you're not going to do? The way we think about product is there are products that we need to have because we as a company have an enormous amount of conviction around them and we'll launch them on spec. Like even if we've never had an institutional client ask us for it, we there are some products where we're like, okay, there's a real thesis here. We believe in this. We will bring something like this to market because we think it should exist. Um, there are products that we will we feel maybe less strongly about, but we're willing to launch anyway if there's sufficient demand for them. If people are really interested, um, we're willing to do that. And we have a really broad product range as a result of that because we do try to be unbiased in that approach. We try to make sure that you know anything that we think meets the criteria from a product selection perspective, we're going to do that, especially if we have clients who want it. How are people using your products? How are they putting them in portfolio, either from a retail perspective or, or an institutional one? So we get both. Um, a pretty good mix between the two, actually. Portfolio construction is interesting. So it used to be a real challenge to get people to allocate you know, a few basis points here and there to because it has really nice impacts from a statistical perspective on your portfolio. And it was a lot of that kind of selling and a lot of you know, vision alignment and, and trying to explain to people what Bitcoin actually did, the, the market's changed a lot. Now you actually see people, clients of ours, who are building portfolios of our products, which was the original intent. Like run your own index. Here's the components. Make it what you want it to be. Like we'll package them for you because we have ideas on things that are interesting that we think will return well. But also, you know, paint with all the colors of the wind here, there's a ton you can do with the components. And that's how we've envisioned our product suite. And we actually see clients doing that for the first time. Actual institutions saying, okay, we're going to allocate, you know, some to XRP, some Bitcoin, we're going to hold some Polkadot, but we're definitely not going to hold, you know, this Cardano, making this up, obviously, because they actually have a thesis around this. And we're seeing people do that for the first time. So, one thing we're talking about here, as I mentioned, there's potentially 12 issuers, maybe more, that want to launch a Bitcoin or crypto ETF in the U.S. And I mean, if you're all launching one Bitcoin ETF 
I mean, there's going to be have to be ways to differentiate. So I guess one, how do you see people differentiating? Obviously, it's going to be fees, um, maybe branding. Do you think that this this new the whole DeFi regular uh, framework has come about? There's a lot of yield farming coming in in cryptos, basically where you can earn yield on your cryptocurrencies. How do you see any of this playing into how different issuers are going to differentiate? Do you have any? Obviously, you're not going to give away your secret sauce or what you're thinking about it. But I guess I'm just curious about how you're how you're framing this when you guys are having conversations about it. So what I've seen in Europe, interestingly, this is not the same kind of market at all as what you would expect in a traditional ETF. Right? This isn't the, the cheapest product is going to steal all of the assets. Like it doesn't, it ends up coming down to expertise is what I've seen in this market. Um, our clients rely on us to know what we're doing. These are highly technical products at the end of the day. In a, in a way that has nothing to do with ETFs, right? How you store crypto really matters. How you transact in crypto really matters. How you think about that. And it's not just how you set it up the first go around. It's how you maintain it over time. How, how are you really going to handle your first fork without it causing massive disruptions? What does that mean for your products? How are you going to dividend that out to people? Or are you not? How do you think about this? Um, and it ends up coming down to, from what I've seen in the market so far, a lot of emphasis on knowing what you're doing um, and being able to make clients comfortable with the fact that you do know what you're doing in space. That ends up being a major differentiator. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Just real quick, pivoting to uh, the news about your firm that um, I saw two days ago about Kathy Wood, who we've had on the show a couple times, um, and she comes up a lot. <laughs> She's always in the in the spotlight. Um, and I think it's interesting. Kathy Wood is a big fan of crypto. It's not a shocker she joined your board, but how'd that come about? Um, I met Kathy a long time ago um, at an ETF conference. Uh, she and I got to talking about, about crypto, about a lot of things she'd actually been talking about on this uh, podcast uh, around what does the space look like? What does the plumbing look like? How do you think about making these products work? How do you think about the impacts of um, crypto on the, the future of what financial infrastructure looks like? All things that I love and she did as well. And we, we kept in touch and she became uh, an informal advisor to the company when we were really early and trying to figure out, quite frankly, like product market fit and, and how to really enter the ETF space. And so it was a really natural fit. There was a lot of a lot of vision alignment, a longstanding relationship even prior to this. Um, and she, you know, became a became a shareholder this week, and that's uh, how we ended up with the announcement. Um, and and how she ended up being part of the fabric of this company. Yeah, I'm going to go on the record right now. She will launch a crypto ETF in some shape or form down the road. I, I think it will be some kind of a crypto, you know, like active management pick, crypto picker. I think there needs to be some underlying crypto ETFs first for her to use, but thoughts? Active crypto is really interesting. Um, active crypto... I mean, clearly there's, there you can get alpha. I mean, if you, if you were good at it, you could really win. 
oh, I, I think from a returns perspective, active crypto is amazing. People who know what they're doing in crypto, it's unreal the kinds of returns you can make, especially, I mean, it's still a pretty, there's still a lot of volatility here. You can do a lot, especially if you're actively trading, if you're, if you're doing things, if you're thesis driven, assets most certainly outperform. You would need a pretty wide roster though. Like I think with our product in Europe, you might be able to do something like that, but you would need, you need a deep bench there, I think, to really be able to capture. And you would need essentially what amounts to regulatory okay for certainly more than Bitcoin and ETH. Uh, and I think it could do very well. Okay. So what, what about um, uh, ultimate active manager and, you know, Elon driving the the Doge coin uh, to the moon. Does that does does that do crypto more harm than good? I think Doge generally actually is helpful, which is interesting. I think one of the big problems with crypto is approachability, and we work really hard on that. How do you make somebody feel confident investing in the space? And a combination of you know the fifty eight thousand dollar sticker price on Bitcoin and the sort of inherent technical jargon that comes around it is really not friendly. What's happening right now with Elon, with Doge, with a lower price point, with all of the pieces that come with that is it's providing a lower barrier to entry for people. And I love that. I think that's ultimately a good thing. Whether it as an investment product does well or not, or whether it sticks around as uh, you know, the, the network and what that ends up looking like, in the long term, I have no idea. But I think in terms of, you know, the branding around it, the mascot, the the language that people are using to describe it, I think it really does make crypto more approachable. And I think on the net, that will end up being possible. Yeah, I'll share a quick, I'll share a quick anecdote. Uh, I was actually on a flight uh, on, on, on Saturday. And the two women I sat next to when I, they came in and sat down and immediately started talking about how they were buying Dogecoin, and wish they were buying more. So like, I, I, I was like, I can't, I can't make By the this way, up. This was like what four hours before SNL aired. Yeah, it was right Doge before crashed. SNL. Yeah, yeah, it was like the worst trade ever. That <laughs> they should not launch the active crypto ETF. Those two. It just well that to that end though it, it like takes me back to like 1920s pre Black Monday crash of like if, shine if boy. people who. Yeah, if, if, exactly. If you if you know nothing about this and you're hearing stuff like that, it's like shoeshine. Like, I'm out. What do you think of that, Ophelia? I think there's a fine line between really hype-driven investment, which is what you're talking about, and mainstream adoption. And I think unlike what we saw in 2017, this time around, it feels like people actually understand what they're doing. So yeah, it's very retail as market but it's in a much more stable way with a nice institutional backbone, which I feel much more comfortable with as a market construction. I think the stuff around SNL is what it is. Okay, last question. Um, favorite ETF ticker that is not your own? Ooh, um, that is so hard because I totally don't come from a traditional ETF background. I will um, say... I almost feel like this is the one guest where we should let her pick her own because she's got HODL, she's got ABBA, she's got Moon. I mean, you've got like an embarrassment of riches in your Jeez. ticker lineup. Do, do it for what? one. We have to do it for all. Yeah. So <laughs> listen, pick your favorite of your own and then your non something out of your family. 
Okay. Um, some of the stuff around like hack, I really like, which is sort of yeah, that's a good one. one that's a like top five. Yeah. Right. That's a top five. Um, yeah. And I think your first is always your favorite. So. Uh, Hodel is an epic one. Uh, I, I will give you that. Abba is um, up there. Chris is always your favorite, right? Um, Abba's mine. I think I like Abba better. I, I just could. I just get Dancing Queen stuck in my head, and it's a. It's that's fine. That's a good day. You got you got Keys and Moon too, which are also fantastic. Uh, Listen, early, we right? kid, but I'm telling you, if these tickers, you could sell these tickers for over a million dollars in the U.S. someday. <laughs> Honestly, it's when you're early, you get to do a lot of cool stuff. It's one of the things that I look at with this market. Like we launched your Bitcoin product in January of 2019. And when you do stuff early, there are some disproportionate advantages to that. Ophelia Snyder, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions. Thank you for having us. It's really fun. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you'd like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. You can find James at J-S-E-Y-F-F. And you can find Ophelia's 21 shares at 21 shares underscore. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.